You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. First Samuel chapter 18. Have you ever seen a family ripped apart? You know, division among family can happen sometimes in, in innocent ways, like in the realm of sports. When I first moved to Eastern North Carolina, I discerned quickly that I must not pick a favorite college basketball team in order to be all things to all people, in order to save some. But true division among families is much more severe than the, the color of the jersey you wear during March Madness, upon which I know very little other than the fact that it looks like North Carolina will not be in the tournament, uh, much to Pastor Tim's chagrin. So, but in our fallen world, there are things much more severe than sports teams that rip apart families, aren't there? Houses divided. In our fallen world, sin rips apart families. Bitterness, unforgiveness, pride adultery, abuse, so much more. And today in 1 Samuel, we will see the house of Saul being ripped apart by Saul's jealousy. After David's great victory that we saw last week from chapter 17 over Goliath, Saul's family begins to fracture and splinter over their reaction to David, the Lord's anointed king. The king that God had chosen for himself is splitting the house of Saul right down the middle. As the Lord Jesus reminds us, if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And so we pick up in 1 Samuel 18, shortly after David's victory over Goliath. At the end of chapter 17, Saul had just asked David, inquired of David about his identity and his family background. He says, David, whose son are you, young man? And as, while Saul inquires about David's identity, trying to figure out who he is, his son Jonathan seems to intuit rather quickly David's true identity as the one who will eventually take his place as the heir to the throne. Let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 18. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also, also in the sight of Saul's servants. Upon meeting each other for the first time, Jonathan and David seemed to have an instant connection between the two of them. Look at what the text says. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. The, the, the intimacy of the friendship between these two men jumpstarts almost immediately and begins to develop further over the coming chapters. 
That the close bond between David and Jonathan, between these two men, mark one of the closest friendships described in the chapters of the Bible. We see in the text that Jonathan and David are so close that they form a covenant together. Over the course of 1 Samuel, they will make three different covenants together over the course of their friendship. Jonathan will be the one who will protect David from his father, and Jonathan will abdicate his right and claim to the throne and give it to his friend, David, the Lord's anointed. The bond is so close between Jonathan and David, as described in 1 Samuel and even 2 Samuel, that some today have even suggested that this is a homoerotic a relationship between two men due to the closeness of their relationship, particularly as David later laments in 2 Samuel 1 that your love to me, speaking of Jonathan, as Jonathan is dead, he says, your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. But, but such a suspicion is just outright foolish. Why would God bless the king he had chosen for himself if that king openly defied the law of the Lord? Homosexual behavior was an abomination before God, and it warranted the death penalty in the theocracy of Israel. And the man after God's own heart, as David is, is a man who obeys God's word. So the fact that such a relationship between Jonathan and David is even plausible to so many today reveals something that has gone terribly awry about our age. And our age Every relationship seems to be filtered through sexuality. We mistakenly equate intimacy with sexuality. In our culture, nothing is platonic. We manufacture sexual tension in every friendship. We confuse affection with lust. We confuse companionship with the erotic. And so it's easy for, for us, construed and, and perverted by the sexual revelation of our, revolution of our day, it's easy to misconstrue the scriptures and to read into David and Jonathan's friendship something that's just simply not there. These two men are not lovers. They're brothers. And our hyper-sexualized perception of them tends to rob us of the deep and abiding love that can exist between Christian friends. In our web of online relationships, very few of us have friendships that seem anything like the sort of friendship that David and Jonathan shared. That's why it's so foreign to us. That's why we misunderstand it. The, the hyper-individualism of the age in which we live, combined with our tendency to want to connect via a screen rather than face-to-face, -face, it's actually impaired our ability to make and to sustain intimate friendships. No wonder loneliness and depression are a plight in our culture today. But yet the Lord has made us relational creatures. God has ordered his human creatures to thrive, to flourish within the close bonds of community. Recovering Christian friendship is a massive part of rebuilding our culture from the communal wrecking ball called the sexual revolution. Church history is littered with testimonies of Christian friendship just like Jonathan and David, Paul and Timothy, Augustine and Ambrose, Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon, John Calvin and Theodore Beza, George Whitfield and John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards and Samuel Hopkins, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, 
History testifies and, and the scriptures repeatedly affirm that we need in our lives close and intimate friends. The preacher of Ecclesiastes tells us two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fail, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Proverbs 27 verse 9 states, Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Do you have friendships like this in your life? Do you have friendships in your life that you could say of that other person, our souls are knit together? Are there friends in your life whom you love as if they were your own soul? Is there a person in your life that you could call this afternoon to whom you could unrestrained, unburden your soul to them, confess your sin, ask them for encouragement and prayer? Do you have a friend in your life who has seen you at your best and at your worst and loves you just the same? If you were having a crisis in your life and you needed a friend who would drop everything to be right there at that moment, who would you call? I'm fearful that many of us wouldn't know who to call. But we should seek out and cultivate friendships like this, like Jonathan and David with other brothers and sisters. We need true friendship, not the sort of superficial friendship that comes from just hanging out, but deep, personal, Christ-focused, soul-knitting sort of friendships. We need Christian friends who can know our souls for what they are and who love us and who encourage us. Who is it in your life that might qualify to be such a friend? Are you known by anyone or are you hiding in the obscure anonymity of a self-willed isolation? Where can you find such a friendship? You might be thinking, Justin, this sounds great to have a friend like this, but how do I find such a friend? How do I make such a friend? How do, how do I develop such a friendship? I think our text gives us a little bit of a clue here. Jonathan and David made a covenant together before the Lord. And one of the best places to find Christian friendship is through covenant membership in the local church. In the church, every member of Redemption Church, we have covenanted together to walk together in brotherly love. What better place is there to find a friend, to make a friend among the people who have already agreed and committed before the Lord to walk together with you? So if you're not a member of a local church, let me, let me encourage you to become one. So many Christians float through their lives, untethered from the covenant commitment of membership, only to flounder in spiritual isolation. We need biblical community. We need Christian friends. And the best way to cultivate those relationships is by covenanting together with others and membership in the local church. My very best friends have come through Redemption Church. Come to our next membership class at Redemption and move towards pray about becoming a covenant member with us. But even as a member of a local church, we still have to be intentional in cultivating those friendships, don't we? We must open up our lives to one another 
if we hope to find a friendship like David and Jonathan's. We must gather together regularly. We must communicate promptly. We must meet in each other's homes. We must speak to one another daily about the Lord. Even as a covenant member, you can wall off your heart to other brothers and sisters, limiting your ability to develop Christian friendships. And may the Lord help us to do this, to cultivate these sort of friendships with each other like that of Jonathan and David. And we see that as part of the covenant that Jonathan and David made together, Jonathan strips himself of his robe and he gives it to David along with his armor and his weapons, his sword, his belt, his bow. What's going on here? Well, by this act, Jonathan abdicates his right to the throne and he gives it to David. Jonathan, you take my mantle. Jonathan is giving up his right as the crown prince and giving that right to David. And here we see in Jonathan what's at the heart of Christian friendship. As Jesus said, greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. Jonathan lives out what Paul instructs of every Christian in Philippians chapter two. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. If you don't have this sort of humility, you'll never find the friendship we're talking about. Friendship is servant-hearted. Uh, as Jonathan strips himself of his birthright, he gives that birthright to the Lord's anointed king. Jonathan becomes a minor character in this narrative from here on out. At times in 1 Samuel, he'll entirely disappear from the narrative for several chapters on end. But as we read of Jonathan, we never hear an ounce of jealousy in Jonathan's heart, only his growing and abiding affection for his friend. God's purpose for Jonathan was not to be famous, not to be king, not to be influential, not to be powerful. Rather, God's will for Jonathan's life is obscurity, to hidden service, to love as he assists his best friend to the throne. Jonathan must decrease so that David can increase. We would be wise, I think, to learn from Jonathan here. As modern people, we tend to like to put ourselves in the center of our story. As sinners, we like to make our purpose, well, it's got to be about me. And those who recognize the lordship of Christ, who recognize that everything is for Jesus's glory, not my own, then, then we understand in the gospel that nothing ought to be about us. We should not be concerned about our name, about our fame, about our influence, about our authority, about our reputation or our power. In fact, like Jonathan in the gospel, we should be gladly cast aside any claim we have to those things and hand them over to whom it is due, the Lord's anointed king. So church, strip yourself of your glory and give your life to Jesus. Make your life about Jesus, not about you. When we embrace our calling as servants, slaves unto Jesus, we embrace the narrow path of Jonathan. When we make our lives about us, we take the broad path of King Saul. Jonathan's humility and his eagerness to serve David contrasts 
with his fathers. When David first came into Saul's house, recorded back in 1 Samuel 16, you might remember the text says that Saul loved David greatly. He had affection for David. After David's victory over Goliath, Saul wanted David with him. David, I want you in my house. Saul, as we've seen in the narrative so far, has a habit of writing the coattails of praise achieved by others. He gladly took credit and praise when Jonathan defeated a garrison of the Philistines. Saul similarly hopes to want to use David in a similar means as a, as a way of utilizing him to achieve his own public praise. Look how great the monarchy of King Saul is. The favor of the Lord was with God's anointed king. And wherever David went, we see it all throughout this chapter, wherever David goes, success goes with him. So Saul eventually makes David commander of the army of Israel, setting him over the men of war, the text says, and everyone in Israel rejoiced in the wisdom of King Saul's appointment of David. It was recognized, Saul, you made a good decision in the sight of Israel, in the sight of Saul's servants. Everybody recognized. And now here we see Saul's beginning to get what he wants. What does he want? David is making Saul's administration look great. And Saul eagerly laps up that praise for himself. Look how wise of a king I am to recognize the potential in this young lad and to bring him into such a position of authority and success. But David becomes too successful. And Saul begins to realize that his plan is backfiring. Rather than riding on the coattails of David's victory, Saul feels as if he's being pushed to the side. As the people's love for David increases, jealousy begins to brew in the heart of old King Saul. Let's keep reading in verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the woman came out all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David 10,000 and to me, they have ascribed thousands. And what more could he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. As David returns from his victory over the Philistine, the celebratory parade ushered a new song to be sung. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now, the song was most likely composed in an innocent manner. as following a Hebrew pattern of poetry called parallelism, where the same thing is said in two different ways to, to emphasize the points. And that seems to be what's happening here. But Saul is a little insecure, and Saul begins to overanalyze the lyrics of the song, and his mind begins to spiral into jealousy. Why are they singing about David? I'm the king. I'm King Saul. David works for me. David's praise ought to be my praise. His glory belongs to me. And why then do they attribute to me only a thousand and to David ten thousand? We begin to see here that the green kudzu of jealousy sprouts in Saul's heart, and it quickly begins to grow, and it quickly begins to choke out any prior love he had for David. 
after this event, Saul sees David as an enemy, as a rival. He's threatened by David's success. He's insecure about the people's love and affections for David. And he now labels David, you are enemy number one in the kingdom of Israel. You are a threat to my authority. David begins to possess everything that Saul had craved. The blessing of God, the praise of the people, all of it seems to be had by David. And we've seen that Saul has already lost the blessing of God. The Lord had rejected him as king. But now we see a turn. The hearts of the nation begins to turn away from Saul and towards David. It's interesting as we analyze Saul, Saul can get by without God's favor, but he cannot do without the favor of his subjects. So Saul grumbles. What more can David have other than the kingdom itself? And from that day forward, Saul puts David in his crosshairs. He's suspicious of him. He's threatened by this rising star in Bethlehem. At first, Saul loved David as a son. But as we've already seen in 1 Samuel, Saul won't hesitate to spill the blood of his son to get the idol that he wants. And just as Saul was ready to execute Jonathan after his daring victory, so now Saul is ready to take out David. Let's read in verse 10 through 11. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. One of the reasons that David was initially brought into Saul's house was because of his skill as a musician. And through the ministry of David and his musicianship, the Lord soothed Saul's troubled spirit. But on this particular occasion, Saul was having an unusually bad day. He was in one of his manic fits, raving in his house, brewing in his heart with jealousy and anger with a spear in his hand. The only other figure we read of in 1 Samuel that has a spear in their hand is a giant from Gath named Goliath. The Lord strengthened David to win the battle over the Philistine Goliath. But will the Lord protect David from the Israeli Goliath? And so Saul hurls his spear, not just once, but twice at David. Fascinatingly, David stays in the room after the first throw, perhaps seeking to soothe and help the troubled king. Insecurity and pride and jealousy. Insecurity and jealousy are two of the bitter fruits that come from pride in our hearts. Saul is insecure, isn't he? He's insecure about David's giftedness, and David's success. Even though David is his subordinate, he fears that David's victories makes Saul look weak. Saul's concern isn't with the prosperity, with the blessing of Israel, but with maintaining the appearance of power and competency before the people. And while Saul initially loved David, Saul loved himself more. And in Saul's pride, he begins to interpret David's success as a threat to his kingship. And from the tailwind of his insecurity, it begins to brew into a tempest of jealousy in King Saul's heart. He wanted David's praise for himself. He dare not share his glory with another. And the tempest of jealousy escalates into a tsunami of violent, wrathful rage against David. 
ask yourself a hard question. Is there anyone in your life that causes you to grow green with envy? We can find ourselves jealous over all sorts of things, can't we? Over the rat race of the Joneses, better house, better vacation, a better car, better salary. But, you know, that sort of jealousy is but the sort of carnal greed of materialism that every Christian ought to put to death by the Spirit of God. But what is most sinister, I think, and what's most dangerous is the sort of jealousy that can infiltrate God's people. Perhaps you grow jealous of another church member who makes a lot more money than you do. Maybe you are jealous of a Christian mom who seems to excel at rearing her children while you're struggling. Maybe you're just jealous of the fact that other people have kids and you don't. Maybe you are jealous of another's perfect health while you seem to face chronic disease. Maybe you're jealous of someone else's marriage. Maybe you're jealous that somebody else is single. Here's a confession. Even pastors can find themselves with jealousy, even as we think about other pastors. We can begin to despise those with more leadership gifting than we have. We can begin to criticize those whom God has seemed to bless more fruitfully. Or we can disdain those who are more apt and skilled at the ministry of the word than we are. Jealousy causes us to despise God's blessing brought through our fellow brothers and sisters and reckon it a curse. Envy causes us to see another's faithfulness as a threat to us. Our pride misinterprets and misconstrues another's obedience as a competitive attack against me. When you find your heart gripped by jealousy, you will begin to view your fellow brothers and sisters as enemies, not gospel partners. We tend to think of some sins as worse than others, don't we? Even though every sin is enough to condemn us before God. But perhaps we, we do that because the earthly consequences of some sins are just a little bit more evident than the sins of others. For example, adultery and murder leaves a very visible and lasting destruction in their wake. But the Bible also repeatedly emphasizes, if we pay attention, that jealousy is one of the most lasting consequentials of sins. Paul writes this in Romans 13, 13 through 14. You can go back there and read it later, but let me read it for you. Paul tells the church, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It's a fascinating couple of verses. Notice the list of sins that Paul puts forward here. Orgies and drunkenness. That seems pretty major. Sexuality and sensuality. Well, that seems pretty major too. Quarreling and jealousy. Well, that's one we probably didn't expect. James writes in his epistle, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Whereas James writes in chapter four, what causes quarrels and what causes fighting among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Brothers and sisters, jealousy is a deadly sin in the body of Christ that will rob us of the joy of our fellowship in Christ, 
that will stir up division in the body and that will hinder the work of the gospel in and through Redemption Church. If you find in your heart this morning any pride, particularly the sort of fruits of pride that are manifested by insecurity and jealousy, you must repent. Jealousy, left unchecked, rips apart the church family and leaves the chaos of embittered and broken relationships. If you allow this storm, like Saul, to begin to brew in your heart, it's only a matter of time before you, blinded by your sin, like Saul, start slinging spears at the very people God has given to soothe you. What's the opposite of insecurity and jealousy? Humility and thanksgiving. Humility and thanksgiving. If you see others more successful than you, humble yourself and follow their example. Follow them as they follow Christ. And then combat your jealousy with gratitude. Thank the Lord for your brothers and sisters and the evidence of grace that you see in their lives. If they're more gifted than you, rejoice in the wisdom of God as he assigns spiritual gifts for the common good. Paul tells us in Corinthians, it's the Lord who apportions to each one individually as he wills. How are you going to be jealous when it's God who assigns the gifts? And better yet, take that gratefulness and express that gratefulness you ought to feel towards your brothers and sisters and offer that to them as an encouragement. That's a way to kill jealousy in your heart. Take that gratefulness and express it as encouragement. Say, brother, I've learned so much from watching you love your wife well. Your marriage is an encouragement to me, and I praise God for the grace evident in your life and in your leadership. Or say, sister, I, you are such a faithful mom. You love your children with joy in the gospel in all seasons. It is an encouragement to me. Thank you for the example that you set for us. Or brother, it is a, it is a joy to watch you steward your financial resources and to see the generosity of God evident in your life as you give to kingdom work. Thank you for modeling that. Can, can you help me steward my resources as the Lord has helped you steward yours? Or thank you. Thank you for the teaching the word of God so faithfully. The Lord has given you great gifts to strengthen my faith in Jesus and to deepen my understanding of his word. You see, if you find yourself feeling jealousy of another in the body, repent of that sin, because that's what it is and give thanks to God for that person and vocalize that thanksgiving as a ministry of encouragement. Sadly, that's not what Saul does. Saul does not repent of his jealousy, but he is going to let it continue to fester over the course of 1 Samuel, culminating ultimately in his demise. Saul's jealousy becomes increasingly more aggressive as he wishes to be rid of David entirely. Saul grew afraid after David escaped his two spear throws because Saul begins to discern what's going on here is that the spirit of the Lord that had departed from him is now with David. And so Saul decides to put David into increasingly risky military battles, hoping that the Philistines will take care of David for him. But... Saul's sneaky plan backfires. As we've seen already, the Lord blesses David in whatever undertaking he takes up. Let's keep reading in verse 12. Saul was afraid of David 
because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings. For the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. We see here more of Saul's foolishness. If Saul recognized that the Lord was with David, then why would Saul expect that the Lord would let him die? Did Saul have so little confidence in the Lord that he actually believed that the Philistines could kill the Lord's anointed? And yet we are told of two opposite reactions to David that begin to creep up. As, as Saul sees David's greatness, the text says that he stood in fearful awe of him, which wasn't a description of adoration, but of trembling realization that David was untouchable by the Lord's strength. I think the word dreaded is probably a better translation here. Saul dreaded David. But while Saul dreaded David, all of Israel and Judah, we are told, loved David. While Saul's fearful jealousy begins to grow more and more in his heart, so does, at the same time, the love and adoration of Israel. With the first plan backfiring, Saul then attempts to lure David into danger through the use of his daughter. But despite Saul's trickery, the Lord continues to bless his anointed king. Let's keep reading in verse 17. Then Saul said to David, <coughs> Here is my elder daughter, Mirab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mahalathite, for a wife. Most likely, Mirab, Saul's eldest daughter, was the bride promised to the one who defeated Goliath. However, Saul's suspicion of David caused him to keep pushing back the marriage further and further. Paul keeps changing the goal line of expectations, pushing it back further and further. David, here, there's more you got to do if you want to marry Mirab. You got to do more and more, fight more Philistines. And so Saul tells David that he can marry Mirab and he can become son-in-law to the king, just as he promised to the guy who defeated Goliath, if he goes out yet again to fight the Philistines. And David is just humbled by the invitation at the opportunity to become the king's son-in-law. But Saul secretly hopes, we're told, that the Philistines will take out David in the process. And when David succeeds in all of Saul's growing demands with the Lord's help, Saul takes back his promise and he gives Merab to be married to another man. Saul could not let David marry his eldest daughter and then perhaps make a future claim to the throne because of it. So he goes back on his word. However, this doesn't stop Saul from seeking to use another daughter he had in his sinister plan to off David. Saul learned that, that one of his daughters loved David, and he decides to use her affections against David. As we've already begun to see right now in this chapter, this plan is going to backfire as well. Let's keep reading in verse 20. Now Saul's daughter Michael loved David, and they told Saul 
And the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. What's going on here? Saul is glad to hear that his daughter Michael has developed affections for David, that she loves David. And so he begins to whip up a plan. He wishes to use his daughter, Michael, as a snare for David, luring him into further combat with the Philistines. Now, if you're following along, it's getting a little laughable at this point because Saul just keeps coming up with the same variation of the same plan. Let the Philistines deal with David. And so Saul extends to David yet another opportunity to be his son-in-law, and David's humbled by the second offer. But the custom of the time was that the groom should pay a bride price in order to marry the bride. And since Michael was the king's daughter, there was simply no way that David could afford to pay the bride price since he says, I'm a poor man and of no reputation. Saul's servants return with David's response, and Saul offers to forego the monetary bridal price in exchange for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, who were the uncircumcised. Saul offer is part of his ploy to see if he can get David killed yet again at the hands of the Philistines. Let's keep reading in verse 26. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commander of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul so that his name was highly esteemed. Verse 26 parallels verse 20. While it pleased Saul to see Michael's love for David, the agreement Saul and David makes pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. Both Saul and David are getting what they desire here. Saul gets what he desires. David has to go toe-to-toe with 100 Philistines. There's no way he can survive that. And David gets what his desire, his desires are to have Michael's hand in marriage. But again, we've seen repeatedly over the course of the chapter, the Lord's hand is with David. And as he goes to earn the bridal price, he kills not just 100 Philistines, but he doubles it to 200 Philistines. Saul had hoped David would die in battle, that he would never get an opportunity to marry his daughter, Michael. Yet David comes back victorious. And so Saul had no other option but to give Michael as David's wife, even though later Saul will give Michael to another man. 
Saul's jealousy just begins to splinter him, not just from the house of Israel, but Saul's own family becomes divided over David. Everywhere David went, the Lord blessed him. And so Saul grows increasingly more afraid. He now considers David public enemy number one. And as David goes out to battle, we're told the Lord just keeps blessing him. He has more success than any other servant of Saul. And the Lord begins to make David's name highly esteemed in not only the house of Saul, but in all of Israel. And as the Lord increased his blessing upon David, Saul grew more jealous, more fearful. Everyone loved David. Even Saul's own family loved David. Jonathan and David had a brother-like bond, a friendship. Saul's youngest daughter also loved David and became his wife. And yet, old King Saul, his heart bruised in a jealous rage. The Lord's anointed divides even a family. On the one hand, the scriptures tell us that Jesus comes to unite one humanity as one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. But yet, on the other hand, not everyone recognizes the kingship of Christ and the Lord's anointed. All of us were at one point just like Saul, weren't we? Grumbling and jealous wrath against the Christ. Why is Jesus getting all the praise? I want it for myself. And so we despised him. We rejected him. We sought to kill him. Jesus came to bring peace, but as the sinners that we are, we conspire with the religious leaders to execute him. Just as Saul laid a snare for David, so did the Pharisees and Sadducees lay traps for Jesus. And while the crowds grew in love for Jesus, the religious elite, insecure and jealous of the people's praise, began to conspire in increasing bloodlust against Jesus. And so Jesus's ministry is polarizing. Jesus tells us this in Luke chapter 12. Write it down and go back and read it later. Luke 12, 51 through 53. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, and son against mother, and mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, and mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The Lord's anointed divides. He divided Saul's house right down the middle, with Jonathan and Michael growing in love for David, while Saul grew increasingly fearful and jealous of David. And so can the Lord Jesus divide your family as well. We ought not to be surprised. The Lord told us it would happen. No one can be neutral when it comes to Jesus. You must pick a side. Will you bend your knee to him? Will you recognize that he is Lord? Will you confess him as such? Or will you despise him or reject him? Those are the only two responses you can have to Jesus. There's no in-between. Everyone must choose. The Lord blessed David because he was God's chosen king. David was the king God had chosen for himself. But as we will soon find out, David will not be the perfect king that we need. David is just a foreshadow of the king who is to come, the greater Christ, Jesus. And though Saul sought to cause David's downfall, David would find a way to do that on his own. 
Though the Lord would not rip the kingdom from David as he did with Saul, David still sinned in egregious ways. And Saul intuited rightly. It would be a woman who would become a snare to David. And after David's adultery, David would employ Saul's very own tactics by murdering her husband by placing him on the front lines of battle. The outpouring of God's prosperous blessing that we will see on David throughout much of 1 Samuel and into 2 Samuel comes to a stop at David's sin. But in Jesus, we have a Christ without sin. The Lord Jesus earns the blessings of God from the covenant that come by obedience. And so in Jesus's perfection, the father grants his son the blessing of victory and success. The Lord Jesus possesses unstained righteousness. He is perfect. He is holy. He is glorious. And so Jesus, the king, brings the Lord's blessing to all of his citizens of his kingdom. When the Lord Jesus went to the battle of the cross, his enemies rejoiced, thinking that they had achieved defeat over Jesus, only to discover that on the third day, the Father gave Jesus victory of resurrection over the dead. And so the Lord's blessing comes through the Lord's anointed. That is the pattern. And in the Lord Jesus, we are promised the blessing of victory, but not the not the temporary victory of health, wealth, and earthly prosperity that so many people are peddling today. No, we are promised the eternal victory over sin and death. That is the blessing Jesus achieves for us. And though Jesus, through Jesus, we receive a, a blessing from the Lord that David could not possess and that he could not share with Israel. Jesus deals with our sinful hearts. He conquers death. He wins for us life, eternal, abundant life. So I implore you, turn from your sin this day and put your faith in the Lord's anointed king. And while the world may divide over Jesus in the gospel by faith in this king, you will share in the victory of the resurrection of the dead that Jesus has won at the end of the age. Between Jesus and the church, we have a stronger friendship than Jonathan and David. In Jesus, we have a best friend who covenants himself to us and who lays down his life for our security and salvation. Between Jesus and the church, we have a stronger marriage than David and Michael. We have a husband who has paid the price for us, not with the foreskin of Philistines, but with his own atoning blood. And so let us then worship the Lord's anointed king. And let's praise the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come before you grateful that you are a king who has come to serve. Lord, we are grateful that Jesus is the blessed one of you, O God who achieves success and victory as he goes to the cross in our place and as he rises again on the third day. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would protect our hearts from the envy and rivalry that so easily infiltrate our hearts. We pray that we'd repent of such sins, not only sins committed against one another, but, but sins of envying and rivaling your glory, O oh Lord. 
Make us humble. Make us like Jonathan, casting aside our birthright for the glory of Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live for you and your glory alone. Lord, we ask that you might convict us of any sin in our hearts. But Lord, that we would recognize the identity of your king. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see and to love Jesus. Lord, as the world divides over him, Lord, may we recognize that he is the son of God, the king of kings, who takes away the sins of the world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.